The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this first half hour is Fraser Allport. He's the owner of Safe and Smart Money, LLC. Welcome to the show, Frazier. Thank you for having me on, Jordan. Let's just start with a little bit of your background and uh, your expertise and tell us a little bit about the, the services you offer and your website. I've been in the business since 1982, 34 years and counting. Uh, I am primarily now a safe money guy. I spent years and years in securities, but they should call them insecurities. Uh, most people end up losing money in stocks. So my focus now is on safe money, retirement planning. I'm a certified estate planner, do a lot of income tax reduction. Okay. And what is your website? It's safeandsmartmoney.com. Safeandsmartmoney.com. And what will people find at that website? My life story, my bio, all of my services, and all of my radio shows are archived on safeandsmartmoney.com as well. So what's the biggest concern you're hearing from your clients these days? Actually, the biggest concern you hear from people is not. There's a tremendous amount of complacency out there. People seem willing to ride this market down. They're stuck in that buy and hold mentality. And buy and hold works in a bull market, but it does not work in a bear market. It's financial suicide in a bear market. The fact that there's such complacency tells you that you have miles to go in terms of selling. So you have to get people really scared out to create a kind of a, a, a huge washout at the end. Is that what you're saying? We're, we're not even close to that is what you're saying. No, you're just getting started. You're probably in the first inning because most people have not sold. The only time you make a major bottom is when everyone has capitulated and sold. And apparently people are still stuck in a buy and hold bull market mentality and just refuse to accept the fact that this market peaked last May, Jordan. The Dow Industrials peaked at 18,351 on May 19th. That's about 16% behind us. You've been rolling over ever since, and that's not a correction. So you have several things that you think are uh, causing this bear market, and let's, let's start right in with, with some of those. Uh, you, you, what you call the headwinds facing the, uh, the stock markets this year. Uh, the first one is falling oil and energy prices. So oil's come down an awful lot from well over 100 to 30 or so. Uh, what is the supply-demand situation for oil, and how much lower do you think it might go? Well, I'm a technician, and so if you look at the charts, charts are always very clean and pure. Uh, there's no opinion. You look at a chart and you see oil today probably heading towards about $9 a barrel, which was the 1991 lows. People say, oh, that's ridiculous, $9 a barrel. Well, when you were at 9 if I had told you we were going to 110 people would have said that's ridiculous. And $9 a barrel at 1991 lows isn't ancient history. It's only about 25 years ago. That's not even a full generation. But the bull, excuse me, the bear market in oil is also just getting going. So uh, the, the stock market seems to be falling, following oil prices. 
if oil goes down to $9 a barrel, what does that mean for stock prices? Well, if you take a look at long-term charts on the Dow Industrials, it wouldn't surprise me in the next five to six years if you see five to 6,000. This whole rally off of March of 2009 when the Dow Industrials was roughly 6,600, this whole rally was based on money printing. It wasn't based on a robust economy. The air went into the balloon, and now the air is coming out of the balloon. This is what happens when you print money. Eventually, the chickens come home to roost. And what you see in the world today is how many people make their living selling oil. People say, well, on this side of the pump, we're having lower oil prices, and that's great if you're gassing up as a buyer. But on the other side of the pump, Jordan, if you are a seller of oil, if you make your living selling oil, and a lot of individuals companies and countries around the world make their living selling oil, there's tremendous financial stress going on. So what is going to happen to those uh, states, uh, I think there's eight states that are major producers in the U.S., to the companies, the oil companies, the exploration companies, the oil service companies, and the countries, whether it be Russia, Venezuela, Nigeria, that are big producers, what is going to happen to them in 2016? Well, that's what the market's factoring in right now, all the tremendous dislocation and all the tremendous money being lost, you're down over 70% in oil since July of 2014. Think of that. In about 18 months, not even really, if I took your paycheck down 70% in 18 months, think of the stress that would cause in your life. Russia, Venezuela, the Middle East, even the United States. Anybody who makes their living selling oil is really being pressed up against the wall. And Jordan, here's the biggest problem. It's right in our backyard, and I spoke about this last summer, and only now are people starting to really recognize that about 20% of the U.S. junk bond market are energy-related bonds. All of these companies in the United States who went out drilling had to borrow money. They did it at double-digit yields. You have a lot of bank loans where the collateral is over $100 a barrel, and you have a lot of these companies in America today, energy companies, who are not going to be able to make money at $30 a barrel. Well, if they can't make money at $30 a barrel, how are they going to make the debt service payments on their bonds? And so you're saying the result is you're going to get a lot of defaults that will hit the junk bond market, and will that hit bank balance sheets as well if they've got loans that aren't going to be repaid? Yes. The thing that runs the world, oil, the thing that runs the world is taking us down. And the markets are recognizing this, finally, that oil is not bouncing back to $50, $60, $70 a barrel. It continues to go lower. And as it goes lower, it's taking down an awful lot of people, companies, and countries with it. And only recently have you started to see articles pop up in the financial press where people are recognizing that, again, if U.S. energy companies, especially the mid to small companies out in the West, if they can't make money at $30 a barrel, and most of them can't make money at $50 a barrel. If you can't make money at these price levels in oil, how are you going to service your debt? So how is that going to be expressed? The junk bond markets are going to have more defaults, and, and this yield spread will rise. It's going to hit bank balance sheets. How do you see that expressed when these people can't make their payments? Well, the junk bond market in the United States today, the energy companies in particular, are the next subprime crisis. In 2009, it was residential real estate. And if anybody goes to my Facebook page, facebook.com, Fraser Allport, I post article after article from all over the world 
all sorts of different financial press articles that are not my opinion. And recently, there's an article there that said the next subprime crisis in the United States is the oil sector. So yeah, you're going to have a lot of banks go down with these oil companies. And those loans were made at over $100 a barrel. Those loans are on the books. Yeah. Um, okay. So that's one of the ways it's going to be expressed. Now, the other thing you say is that beyond oil, other worldwide commodity prices are falling. Um, so how do you see that happening and how will that impact the economy? Well, the big, big picture here, globally and historically, in a word, is deflation. I'm a history major. The Jesuits at Georgetown banged history into our heads. What you look at in the world today is that all of the world's debt is coming home to roost. Trillions and trillions of dollars of debt, not even mentioning the derivatives, all of that bad debt is literally weighing the system down. And deflation is an implosion. Jordan, it's kind of like when they blow up those hotels in Vegas and you see the hotel collapse inward. What's going on in the world today is that deflation is taking over. Now, it doesn't happen overnight. It's a slow process. Again, oil peaked in July of 2014, and that was your first harbinger of deflation. But all over the world, central banks are printing money. They're actually adding more fuel to the fire. The problem is money printing. And deflation will run its course and this great bear market will not end until all of the world's bad debt has been liquidated. And that was true of 1929 to 1932. Everybody paid for the Roaring Twenties. And ultimately, all of the world's bad debt needs to be liquidated. You either liquidate it by going bankrupt, or you liquidate it by you stop buying things and you take your income and you make debt service payments. And that shuts down the consumer. So when you take a look around the world today, commodity prices are simply confirming oil prices. Global growth is slowing. As a matter of fact, today's headline in the stock market, February 8th, is the worry about global growth. No kidding. I was how arguing. The, what, how, with what you see coming, going to compare with the 30s and the Depression? It will be similar, worse, better? How, how will it compare with that, which is another deflationary period? Well, I'm a history major. So again, it's not my opinion. If you take a look at history, it is ever-expanding cycles. And so this particular bear cycle would be one degree larger than 1929 to 1932. So get ready. And we're in it. Uh, when the stock market peaked, the Dow in particular, the Dow Industrials back in May, Everybody knows the stock market is a discounting mechanism. It discounts or factors in the future, usually by three to six months. So in May of 2015, when I was on the roof telling my clients to get out, you knew that the stock market knew something the rest of the country did not, which was that a recession was coming. And if you look at some of the numbers from the fourth quarter that have been recently released on the U.S. economy, the fourth quarter is when the recession really started. The Federal Reserve itself has acknowledged that the economy, quote, braked sharply in the fourth quarter. So when people say, when's the next recession, you're in it. Yet the Fed raised interest rates in December, and they're talking about raising them f further in 2016. What would that do to the economy? Well, the Fed is a really good contrary indicator. The Fed is usually last and wrong. And so the Fed was raising rates. And again, I mentioned this on my radio show back in the fall, that the Fed was raising rates at exactly, precisely the wrong time. 
And what if they do more? What if they increase it more? Well, they're simply going to be cascading and adding to the problem. You know, John Kenneth Galbraith, the historian in his great book, 1929, The Crash, wrote, and I quote, just when you thought the news could not get any worse, it did. And so great bear markets are all about a cascading flow of bad news on top of bad news. So the Fed, if they're true to form, will continue to make mistakes and raise rates. The Fed is hanging on to this belief that the economy is growing because that's what they want to believe. That's what they need to believe because that's been their policy since 2009. The Fed's not going to admit that pumping trillions of dollars into the economy since 2009 has been an utter failure. So the talking heads at the Fed continue to go out every day and say that the economy is just fine and dandy. Well, that's kind of akin to your broker saying, don't worry, be happy, buy more. It's worked out so well so far. Very good. All right, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest for this half hour is Fraser Allport. Uh, he runs a website called Safe and Smart Money. And we'll be back after this. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies. Now he's come to the Voice America Business Channel to help you and your business. Tune in to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for information about starting and successfully running a profitable business. From the movers and shakers to great marketing screw-ups, you can't afford to miss a single edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest for this half hour is Fraser Allport. He runs the website safeandsmartmoney.com. Uh, he's also a money manager. Welcome back to the show, Fraser. 
Thanks, Jordan. So we talked about the deflation. We could go into all the reasons why it's going to happen, but let's get right to what investors should be doing uh, and where they should be putting their money to profit from the deflation you see happening in the world. Well, I just want to backtrack one second briefly in that the other great deflationary in the force in the world today is China. And China is also exporting deflation by devaluing its currency. So everywhere you look in the world today, all of the winds are coming together to coalesce into the perfect storm of deflation. Yep. Historically in deflation, and, and Jordan, you're a deflation guy. You know what I'm talking about. Historically in the world, if you look at deflation throughout all of history, cash is king. You get to the high ground. You buy the safest companies the safest assets you can possibly have because in deflation, liquidity evaporates. So, oh, but you are nothing on cash today. So are, are there other things you would recommend other than cash in this kind of environment? Well, first of all, I would rather earn zero than lose money. Okay. So if somebody said to me, you're sitting in a T-bill at zero and you're losing money. Well, no, I'm not. The people who are losing money are the people in every other financial asset. And also, if you're sitting safely in cash, then the thing that you're eventually looking to buy, the thing on your shopping list, including real estate, is going down. So being in cash is almost like being short. You're How picking about up treasury, treasury bonds, which are, as interest rates have been falling, treasury bond prices have been rising. What do you think about treasuries here? Well, the problem with the Treasury market is that I was looking over the weekend at some numbers, and I'm a contrarian, and you see 97% bulls in the Treasury market, which means that everybody is bullish, which means everybody's bought, and if everybody's bought, there's nobody left but sellers. One of the big surprises near term is the rising of interest rates. And it won't be because of inflation. It'll be because of a credit crisis. It'll be because people are literally worried about getting paid back. People think that bonds are only moving because of interest rates or inflation. No, bonds are about credit. If you think you're not going to get paid back, rates will rise because you demand more as a lender. Look at the junk bond market in the United States in the fourth quarter of 2015, and it was getting taken apart. Just like 2007, the junk bond market was your first sign of, uh-oh, Really smart, savvy bond so there could investors. Be a sp the spread is widening. Junk bonds, prices are going down, yields are going up. But treasuries, prices are rising and yields are falling. The spread is widening. So if, if you think deflation is going to be hurting junk bonds, how about putting money into treasuries? Well, again, the problem is that if you take a look at the treasury market today, everybody in the world is super bullish. Because they say, well, growth is slowing down, there's no inflation, so I'm going to go buy treasuries. Well, when 97% of the treasury bond market is bullish, it means the bulls are in, they've bought, there's nobody left to buy. So from a contrary investing point of view, once again, I believe you're going to see interest rates on treasuries rise near term. Okay. And so how about other interest-sensitive vehicles that are kind of bond surrogates, real estate investment trusts, utilities? Uh, business development companies, master limited partnerships, kind of bond surrogates. Would those do well in this environment? Well, in the Great Depression of 1929 to 32, the Dow Jones utility average literally got almost erased by 70, 80, 90 percent. So, again, if you have a shift in the paradigm where interest rates start to rise on treasuries, 
then it's going to be very hard to find safe assets. Treasury bills, 30, 60, 90 days, and there are a few treasury bill only money funds out there, would be the best place to park your money short term. You're looking for the ultimate in guarantees, and that would come from T-bills, insurance companies, and banks. And even the banks and the insurance companies, you really want to scrutinize who you're investing with. This is going to be a very tough environment to invest. I think people would be wise to focus on return of their capital versus return on their capital. How long do you think this might last? Uh, we've been building up this uh, inflationary bubble, uh, the kind of debt bubble for a long time. How long will it take for it to unwind in the deflationary uh, cycle you're looking at? You could take a look at cycles and some demographics in the U.S. economy that 2020 to 2021 would be a good target. You don't set your watch by these cycles, but uh, for the last 200 years of stock market history in the United States, every great bear market has had three mini bears inside the belly of the bear. First leg down was 2000 to 2003, and we rallied from 2003 to 07. Then in 07, the U.S. junk bond market very eerily was the leading indicator, just like this year in 2015. And then you had the stock market in 08 and the real estate market in 09. Second leg down was 2008 and 09. And we rallied from 09 up until May of 2015. So if you believe in 200 years of market history, Jordan, there is one last final purging of the system right in front of us. And I believe we're in it right now. That will take us down another five, six years. And that would take you to 2020 which would fit neatly with a 20-year bear starting in 2000. This whole market since 2000 has really been one giant bear market rally. Adjusted for inflation since 2000, you've gone virtually nowhere. So 2020, you, 2020 is your answer, roughly. Okay. When you talk to your clients and you say, sell everything, stay in cash in the treasury bills, and just wait out the apocalypse here, what do they say to you? Well... Some people on the bridge of the Titanic understood that water was pouring in the sides and could feel the ship lurching beneath them. And you didn't have to convince those people to get in the lifeboats. And some people were led to believe that help was on the way and they stayed on board. And so some people listen and get in the lifeboats. Some people look at their statements and see the hemorrhaging that's going on. The Russell 2000 is down 25% since its peak last year. The Dow Industrials is down over 16% as we speak today. Some people get out, some people don't. But as I say to all clients, you know, when the weather changes, you change your wardrobe. When it starts to rain, you come in out of the rain. But I'm astonished at the number of people who continue to take a beating in this market and listen to the people who give them the platitudes of don't worry, be happy, buy more. Folks, if you're listening to the people who sell stocks for a living, consider the source. They sell stocks for a living. So if all you've got's a hammer, everything looks like a nail. What do you think your broker's going to say to you? Get out? Some people get out, Jordan. Some people don't. Some people get in the lifeboat. Some people don't. And ultimately what happens, unfortunately, is that every great bear market in every kind of market does not end until the last person sells. The last dog has to die. So everybody out there today who has not yet sold eventually will at some point. And that's why buy and hold in a bear market is literally like strapping yourself to the mast and going down with the ship. 
Now, professionals don't do that. Professionals use stop loss orders. By the way, for those people who believe buy and hold is a great strategy and you believe your broker, buy and hold, buy more, don't worry, be happy, it begs the question, if they're telling you to buy and hold, who's doing all this selling? The professionals are always the first ones in at the bottom and the first ones out at the top. The old phrase on Wall Street is that the pros panic first. Someone's been doing an awful lot of selling all the way back to the beginning of 2015. Take a look at chart of the Dow Industrials all the way back to January of 2015 and you see one giant umbrella top, a big top. Someone's been doing selling big time for over a year. Take a look at the Dow Transports, which has been getting crushed as a leading indicator since late 2014. Who's doing all that selling? That's the professional. Um, yeah, they tell you to buy and hold, and they're the first ones out the door. Who do you think they're selling to? I I'm just amazed that the average investor isn't mad at being had by Wall Street. Some other things that economists say is the falling oil prices is a boon to the economy because consumers have all this extra money and they're going to be spending it and they'll kind of say that, that only a small portion of the U.S. is actually the producing part of oil and the majority, this is an enormous tax cut and benefit to. What do you say to those people? Well, that's nice in terms of their opinion, but the facts are being played out in the market every day. Every day when you read the headlines about the market being crushed, oil is the driver. Oil is taking the world down. Oil runs the world and it's taking the world down with it. What people don't realize is the tremendous amount of individuals, companies, and countries that make their living selling oil and all of the oil and petroleum-based related products. So it's a nice theory to say, well, cheaper gas means the consumer will go spend, but that hasn't been happening, has it, Jordan? Instead, what you, read, right, now, right. what you read every day is that oil is taking the markets down. Another thing people say is that the dollar has been very strong, and that shows that the U.S. economy is strengthening, and we're kind of the beacon of hope, and, and we're getting stronger all the time because the dollar is rising. What do you say to that? The dollar's been rising because there's no other alternative. Uh, Fifty or a hundred years from now, the dollar may be replaced as the world's reserve currency, but the dollar has not been rising because of a strong U.S. economy. The dollar's been rising because where else do you go in the world for safety? Would you buy the Russian ruble, the Chinese yuan? some Latin American currency. The dollar's been rising by default, and what the dollar's rise really tells you is the fear, the fear out there in the world amongst really smart people who say, I'm getting to the high ground. And so we have the high ground, so it also makes it harder for us to export when the dollar's that strong, right? So it hurts our manufacturers. That's right, which is a reason why the strong dollar, too strong a dollar, can be a headwind for U.S. stocks. People don't realize that a strong dollar means everything pegged to the dollar is going down. It's like a seesaw. It's a direct relationship. So if the dollar is going up, everything pegged to the dollar, including a lot of other currencies, are going down. And all of those currencies going down is more deflationary pressure. People really would be wise to read some history on deflation, what it is, why it happens, and what it does, and how to survive it. Quite a lesson indeed. Well, very much appreciate your uh, information on the show. Uh, my guest this half hour has been Fraser Allport. Uh, he's, his website is called safeandsmartmoney.com. You can see he's got some very strong views and lots of experience in the markets. So thanks so much for being a guest on the Money Answer Show, Fraser.
Jordan, one last thing you asked me to mention to people is that if they want this complimentary report, the 12 headwinds, they can get it complimentary at safeandsmartmoney.com. And I thank you for having me on as a guest today. Very good. Well, thanks so much. And we'll be back after this. Thanks, Jordan. Take care. Thank you. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in government, the legal arena, and the business world impacts your business every day. And we're going to take you on a behind-the-scenes tour of it all. Each week, we'll bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers and leaders. Squire Patton Boggs will be your guide as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join us for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Channel each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest for this half hour is Mark Falter. He is the president of Mid-American Tax Advisory Group. Welcome to the show, Mark. Well, thank you, Jordan. Appreciate Let's, you uh, inviting me on. Let's just start with a little bit of your background and what your firm does. Of course, we're, without saying, in the tax business, and I've actually been in the financial services or tax business in one way, shape, or form for 30 years now. And uh, most of our work is uh, in the retiree market. And, of course, we do a lot of individual returns, a lot of corporate returns, and I personally do a lot of financial planning and uh, insurance work. Um, conservative money investments. And your website to find out more about you is midamericantaxadvisory.com, correct? That is correct. And what can they find at that website? They can find a lot of different information about us, some different videos uh, that I've actually done, uh, talking about different conservative investment options, uh, options about life insurance, um, and of course some different tax strategies there also. Very good. So let's talk about insurance, which is an area you, you have a lot of expertise in. Um, a lot of people are not clear how much insurance they need. Do they have too much? Do they have too little? How can you figure out what the appropriate amount of life insurance should be for somebody? 
the real kind of the rule of thumb <clears throat> is six to ten times, and I know that sounds like a very broad range, but depending upon your income, of course, uh, if you're a $50,000 year income earner, you're probably going to be more toward the six times. Uh, if you're, uh, excuse me, more toward the ten times. If you're a $200,000 year income earner, you're probably going to be more toward the six times, but six to ten times your annual income. And, um, yeah, to give you a little history on myself on the insurance industry, like, or the insurance business, that's how I started in this industry 30 years ago. And uh, so we've done a lot of work with insurance in the ages of people from 25 to 70 years old. And the standard rule of thumb that I use on coming up with a need for insurance, first of all, is it sounds crude, but who's not going to eat if you die, you know? Um, sometimes I've seen people use life insurance as an investment tool. can work, but, again, I don't necessarily believe that uh, a person should be doing it just for the investment. But typically six to ten times your annual income. So how do you figure out what the pr appropriate mix would be between cash value insurance, where there's some investment going on in a tax-free manner, and term insurance, which only pays if you die, but it's much cheaper. You can buy much more insurance with that. How do you get the right balance between right. term and cash value? I think the most important thing, and this is what people got to hear out of this and get out of this, the most important thing is face amount. Uh, in other words, term is obviously less expensive than cash value life insurance. Um, you're going to be able to get more of it. First thing you got to do is you got to figure out how much you need. In other words, if your wife or spouse or significant other or whoever's left behind took these assets, invested them at three to four percent, how much income could they bring in? Um, in will that you know make that number replace their income? Then, based on that, you need to back that into the premium. Because here's what I unfortunately have seen happen time and time again in our industry, and it really frustrates me, and that is agents that will just, they're bent on selling cash value insurance, and at the end of the day, the person leaves under, the client leaves underinsured because the agent was bent on cash value life insurance. And I'm not against cash value, but the most important thing is the proper face amount. Um, get that person, in, get yourself insured for the right face amount first. And if you can't afford cash value premium, then you need to own term. And uh, if you can, then you can maybe look at the, a combination of the two. I believe really the best is the combination of the two. I don't really think one way or the other is 100% one way or the other. How about some people who say cash value insurance is a very expensive way to save. A lot of money goes to commissions. You're getting kind of low returns anyway, particularly in traditional whole life. And the better way to go is to buy term for as much insurance as you need and then invest the difference in stock index funds. I actually, to be honest with you, the company that I came into the industry with, that was their complete sales pitch, and I believe that way. If I had to say, if I somebody held a gun to my head and say, Mark, what do you believe one way or the other, I would say that would be my primary, because you can do better in most cases outside of an insurance policy than you can inside. You can get the proper face amounts. Now, here's the problem with that. Um, I was a major believer, me, myself, and I, not just as what I did with my clients, but what I purchased on myself. Um, of buying term and investing the difference. And I did invest the difference. But now I am 50. I bought this stuff when I was in my 30s, and I'm into a 20-year term policy, 17 years. And guess what? I still need life insurance. So there's the problem. Many people need life insurance past 20 years. And just a little clarification, some listeners may not know, term insurance comes in time frames, 10, 20, and sometimes 30, but the most common is 20-year term. When you run to the end of these terms, they get horrendously expensive. No, the insurance company has it planned 
for you not to keep it. And yes, you can convert it, but typically you'll want to not do that. It's, it's usually very expensive. That's where the permanent coverage comes in. And uh, the permanent coverage kind of takes over at a lower face amount and can last for a much, much longer period of time. Um, you know, what's happened, uh, Jordan, in the last three to four years, and five years, the insurance industry has created some products because there was so much of this term and invested difference going on. They've created some products here in the last five years that finally caught my attention and started swaying me over to the uh, invest through the life insurance philosophy uh, with index ULs, no lapse guarantees. These are things they didn't have back in the 1980s and 1990s uh, that plagued universal life and things of that nature that have made permanent coverage much, much more expensive, or excuse me, much, much more attractive. Um, so you like index uh, universal life? Uh, instead of traditional whole life insurance for somebody Absolutely. who wants permanent insurance? Absolutely, because here's the problem with whole life insurance. The good part about whole life insurance is it's you know exactly what you're going to have at age 100. The problem is it's just dang expensive and um, very, very, very hard, if not impossible, to get the proper face amount on, on anybody, for that matter. The older you get, the harder it gets to get the proper face amount through whole life insurance. Um, you know, one of the bullet points I always talk about is what I call the vanishing cash value policies. What plagued the industry so much so that they paid out millions of dollars in lawsuits was universal life when the agents unfortunately could underfund this stuff. In other words, have the client not paying enough for it. And the cash value would start running out in the client's 80s and mid-80s. And really, if they buy the universal, they pay more for it the thing runs out of cash value in their 80s, it's like they had an extremely expensive term policy. Really, they don't have any cash value in it. What I think the industry has done that's been phenomenal is create the no-lapse guarantee. So now the risk is on the insurance company, not on the consumer. You just have to keep a certain amount in the cash value to get to no-lapse guarantee. You always have to have a cash value life insurance policy. is like a, It's like an engine. An engine has to have gas to make it run. If you don't have a certain amount of cash value in the life in the certain amount of money in the cash value, it does not run. But what these companies have done is they've created products with these no-lapse guarantees on them that are created to have very little money in the cash value. And it's really, it's like they have created the permanent term. Yes. Um, so I guess the problem with the Universal was when they first came out in the 80s, interest rates were much higher right. and you were earning a decent yield. But now with interest rates going down to very, very low levels, the policy is not earning enough, and that's why they start lapsing. Is that the way it works? That's exactly correct. And um, in many cases, Jordan, what I've found is, um, you know, the, the, in my opinion, where the insurance industry, I wish they wouldn't have allowed the representatives that sold it to vary that premium. The one thing with whole life insurance in term, it is what it is. The premium is exactly X a year. You can't take it up. You can't take it down. With Universal, you could flex that premium. Well, what I've seen happen, actually, on the street dealing with clients is representatives, instead of overfunding it, they underfunded it because their philosophy was it is easier to sell a less expensive product than a more expensive product. Well, the problem is that gets the client into a problem in their 80s. Well, the agent is usually out of the business at that point. And uh, so it's not something they got to deal with. It's something the client has to deal with. So, so what, what are some of the advantages of index universal life? It, you, you have a downside protection, right. but in, in return for that, you're giving up upside with, with caps on the upside, upside. returns. Is that, a, is that a good trade-off? 
that's a pretty good trade-off. It's very much like an indexed annuity. However, the caps are tremendously higher. Um, just to kind of give you an idea, the caps that I've seen, companies that I work with, between 12 and 14% upside caps, no downside. Um, one particular company I do a lot of work with has had an 8.6% return for the last 10 years. 8.6% return for 10 years is pretty darn good because they don't suffer a downside. They have a good upside cap. Are there years you give up some of that upside? Yeah, but if you've got a 135 to 14% cap, that's a pretty good-sized cap. Um, what company so, are you referring to that gave you that 8.6% return? Uh, Midland National. Midland National has had an extremely good rate of return for the last decade. And uh, other companies just like them, they're not the only, only, uh, only company out there. Um, but if the stock market goes down, you're not going to get that, right? I mean, we're in the middle of a right, bear market. That's the biggest key. If the stock market goes down, you're not going to get it. And, and one of the products that I'm really adamantly opposed to is the old um, variable universal life. Because when a person buys life insurance, their thought process in buying law, the life insurance is permanency. They want something permanent. When you start interjecting a variable in there, you're injecting mutual funds, which is great when the market's doing 20%. When the market's losing 50, it can really set you back and can run you into that problem in your mid-80s of running out of cash value. So the index UL, especially the index ULs that have no lapse guarantees on them. Um, now, back to the um, you know, tax-free gains. That's one of the biggest benefits in, a, in investing in a permanent policy is the tax-free, the ability to take money out tax-free. Here's my philosophy on that. If a person needs, back to the who, who doesn't need if you die, uh, if the person needs life insurance, good, good way to go. You can, you're already putting the money in. You need the life insurance, so that's a good thing, and you can invest some additional money, and you can build up the money tax-free. You have these good uh, gains on your product. You have 13.5% caps and so forth. Now, where I don't think it should be marketed is for the person that has no need for life insurance, and it's sold to them as an investment. Because now all of a sudden you've got an, ins an investment with a huge cost to it. That huge cost is the insurance. Now, if you need the insurance, it's not a huge cost anymore. You needed it. But when it's sold and the person doesn't need that insurance, I think it's improperly sold in a scenario like that. And you're saying that's happening a lot, that it's being sold as an investment, not really right. as an insurance. Correct, actually. And um, every single solitary company that underwrites this stuff will tell you that on the brochure that this is insurance first, do not sell it as an investment. Matter of fact, Prudential and many other companies paid millions of dollars in fines over that problem of it being sold as an investment. Now, does it work as a good investment? Yes, but the person's got to need the life insurance first. How does the insurance company uh, pr provide that downside protection? Say the stock markets fall sharply as it is right now. How do they protect themselves against the value of the portfolio going down? Well, it's very much like an indexed annuity. If you dig into an indexed annuity, how do they do what they do? How do they not give the client uh, a loss? How do they give the client only a zero? You've got to get into how the insurance companies make money. And in many cases, what they're doing, they're buying bonds, they're buying puts and calls on the market. But to be honest with you, most of the insurance companies' money is invested in fixed products, but they're taking 20 to 30% out, buying puts and calls on the market, buying bonds for themselves. And at the end of the day, it's like I tell many of the people that I've worked with, it's a contractual guarantee. They've got to do what they've got to do. If they don't do it properly, it's not your problem. You've got a no-lapse guarantee. It's a contractual guarantee that they can't give you a negative return, and um, you know it's their problem, not yours. But they do do it, and they seem to make money uh, all the time. They have the biggest buildings in any major city you go into. So 
So very good. All right, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest for this half hour is Mark Falter. He's the president of Mid American Tax Advisory Group. His website is midamericantaxadvisory.com. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. What if every day was a good day for business? Because every decision you made was the best choice. What if you could receive regular input from credible sources and could acquire all the precise information you need exactly when you need it so you can make the right decision every single time? Because There's More challenges you to make better decisions. Join Laura Ellis every Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific, and 2 p.m. GMT on the Voice America Business Channel and learn how to think differently for better decisions, better business. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest for this half hour is Mark Falter. He's the president of Mid-American Tax Advisory Group. Uh, They're based in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, His website is midamericantaxadvisory.com. Welcome back to the show, Mark. Thank you very much, Jordan. So we were talking about insurance companies, and people are very nervous these days. What what can you tell people about the safety of insurance companies, particularly if the stock market falls sharply? Uh, the guarantees they're they're giving out that there are no zero gains, but no losses if the market falls. What what can you tell us about the uh, the safety of that? It's a good question. A lot of people are nervous about a lot of things right now because the market's at an all time high and it doesn't look real solid. Um, so how do we know the insurance companies are that much more so? My first thought is, you know, the best indicator of the future is the past. Go all the way back to the past, to the Dow Jones, back to 1900. When the Dow Jones was crashing back in the 1930s, insurance companies were still solid, and they were still paying dividends, and they were still doing what they do. Um, one of the things that we can often uh, refer back to is the fact that no one has ever uh, lost money in an annuity, by the way, is an, an insurance company's form of an investment. No one has ever lost money in an annuity due to company failure, due to the insurance company's failure. Um, and uh, the reason for that is a couple. Number one, to sell in any state in the country, the company has to be reinsured. Um, back in 2008, our listeners may remember that George Bush bailed out AIG, American General. Right, and and the reason for the bailout, if it had been any other company, they may not have gotten bailed out. But AIG was too big to fail because they are the country's largest reinsurer. 
Had something happened to AIG, it would have actually rocked the foundations of the uh, insurance industry. So they're reinsured. Many uh, a company is basically set up to buy that company's book of business before that company can even sell in the state. Secondly, the state backs them up. In many states, it's either 250000 per account or 350000 per account. So first you've got the reinsurer, second you've got the state. So it's a very, very solid system. So do you think that, I mean, these, the state insurance funds, as I understand, that are relatively small compared to the size of the insurance companies. And there have been insurance companies that have gone under in the past. Uh, Executive Life is one that comes to right. mind. And they get absorbed by other companies. But right. if things really turn down, do you think that the state insurance funds and the reinsurance companies are strong enough to sustain that? Yeah. I, let's put it this way. I think they're stronger than any other thing we have. And again, I, well, the reason I, I say that is I refer back to the Great Depression. It worked during that time frame, and I don't think we've ever reached a time that was bad, that bad since. 2008 was getting close, but, uh, and it's worked throughout history. So it's as good as we got. Let's put it that way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Another thing we want to talk about was insurance for kids. Now, some people yeah. buy life insurance for kids saying you, uh, they may not have an insurable need yet, but the younger you buy it, the cheaper it is, and you're locking in a rate for a long period of time at a younger age. What are the pros and cons of buying life insurance for kids? The, the, I think every child needs life insurance. I was looking last night on the Internet, and the average cost of a funeral was seven to $10,000, depending upon where you look. Uh, does the parent want to stay home from work after the child's died? Probably for a month or so. But at the end of the day, does the child need $300,000 worth of coverage? Probably not. Matter of fact, the insurance company won't let you put that much coverage on a child because back to this insurable need. Um, so typically what I find, a large amount of coverage on the child is twenty-five to 30000 My theory with that is because insurance is a cost, it is cheaper on a child, but it's really cheap, less expensive to put them on as a, as a rider on your current policy. There's a couple of reasons I like the idea of having them on as a rider. Uh, one is if you have six children, they can all go on, on, on as a rider and be the same price. In other words, if it's $50 a year for the rider, it covers six kids, covers one kid, there's no increase in premium. So it's literally the least expensive way that you can do this. Uh, secondly, every company that has a that does a rider will allow that child to convert, typically at age 21, 18, some of them, uh, for five times the coverage without evidence of insurability. So they can then go get their own policy in whatever type they want, um, and then they're off and running on their own policy. You know, is it a good idea to have a investment-type policy on a child when they're young, I come back to what I said in the earlier segment, you know, what, um, you have to have an insurable need there. I'm a real stickler on that, so I'm not a real big fan of getting a child into an investment-type product uh, if they don't need the extra additional coverage. When you get a term policy, often it comes with what's called a convertibility feature, meaning it can get converted into a permanent whole life policy of some kind. Is that a good thing to have, or do, do oh, a lot yeah. of people convert those, or what, what, what are the things people should look for in a convertibility in a term policy? First of all, every term policy, be it a child rider or your own personal term policy, is convertible. Um, they, have, they all have it. They have to have it. It's kind of like power steering on a car. Now, what you got to do, and unfortunately, i got to admit, I learned this at 10 years into the industry. I just assumed that all convertibility was the same, and it is not. You got to read the fine print of the policy, and before I purchased the term policy, I would want to see a sample policy. Uh, I learned the hard way, and that is certain policies. I go back to Midland since I already mentioned their name. 
one of the reasons I'm a big fan of Midland. They'll let you convert to any product they have for sale at that time. Certain other companies, like the one we built out in AIG, or back in uh, 2008, AIG will only let you convert to a couple of policies. Um, so they're very stringent on what you can convert to. If you're looking for conversion privileges on your own term policy, it's very important to look at this because some of them won't, you, people assume when they are able to convert, they can run to the end of this term and then convert. You can't assume that. Uh, one of the very large companies that I'm thinking of, you have to convert within a three-year time frame, and it does not run to the end of the policy. So it's like the 15th through the 18th year. It's really odd. One of the reasons they don't want you to convert, honestly. And so you've got to really read that and know that before you buy the policy. Yeah, indeed. Uh, so just to kind of summing up, what role should insurance play in somebody's financial plan, both the insurance part, but also as an investment, as a way to save for the long term? I think the perfect plan for an adult, I think, you know, not talking a child anymore, I think having a quarter to, you know, 30 to 40 percent of their stuff is permanent. Uh, that builds up a good cash value, like I said, through maybe the index ULs definitely have a no-lapse guarantee on it. But having the bulk of it still as term is still not a bad idea because you can get a large amount of coverage for a very inexpensive premium that way. Um, and particularly in the current environment where the economy seems to be turning down, the stock market's extremely volatile, what role does a cash value policy play in that particular kind of environment? Well, the good thing about a cash value, if you get the types we've been talking about, uh, the indexed and the more permanent type, um, you don't lose money when the market goes south. Um, like your last call, your last guest that was on here, I was talking about the, the market environments that we're in. It doesn't look like we're going to be making those 15s and 20% anymore. It looks like we're going to probably be looking at negative returns. Um, and that being said, you don't want to take a negative return, and these products can actually pay a positive return over five- to seven-year period of time where the market's actually losing money more often than not. Do they provide certain minimum guarantees? You're not going to just get zero. You no, might get sure two do. or three percent. What, what kind of minimums typically are available? Typically, you'll find about one and three-quarters to three percent being your minimum guarantees that you'll get on these type of products. So you think, is it something you should go for the three percent guarantee? If the market continues to go lower and lower and lower, yeah. Yeah, I would go for the higher guarantee if you can sure get it. Yes. Yeah. And is that accredited to every year, or is it kind of done retroactively? Oh, it's credited every year. Yeah, it's credited every year to the product. Excuse so that's, me, back up. On the, on the guarantees, with yes. the index, they'll actually go retroactive on the thing, depending upon the type of product you have. Um, uh, so they'll actually weigh the index, weigh the re fixed return, and at the end of a period of time, they'll actually look back and see which one's greater. And then the way you typically take money out of these index policies is by borrowing it out, not actually taking it as a distribution, correct? This is a very, very good point, Jordan. I'm glad you brought this up. And that is the way you get money out is critical. You have to borrow it out, but most of your more savvy companies uh, will do a what they call a wash loan. That means a 0% loan. Basically, they're calling it a loan for IRS purposes, and it's been done for years and years this way. The point of that is you don't have to pay taxes on borrowed money. So you're taking this out as a wash loan. You're paying 0 to 3% interest, but you don't have to pay tax on the money. So there's, there's the benefit of the tax-free gains. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this half hour has been Mark Falter. He's the president of Mid-American Tax Advisory Group based in Kansas City, Missouri. You can find out more about him and all he, everything he was talking about at his website, midamericataxadvisory.com. Thanks so much for being a guest on The Money Answer Show, Mark. 
Well, thanks again, Jordan. Appreciate it. Thanks again, and we'll be back next week with another edition of the Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.